Welcome to the XEGS Cart by Cart podcast, the first and only podcast covering Atari's last answer to the 8-bit gaming system. In episode 18, we take a trip back in time to World War II. First, we play as an Allied commando dropping into the Eagle's Nest to rescue our captured men, attempt to blow up the compound, and make our escape. Then we change sides and play as a German commander during Operation Barbarossa as we attempt to strategically take Russia in Eastern Front 1941. Now here are your hosts, David and Michael. Welcome back, everybody. Well, let's get into the general news. Up until recently, when we do a review, we tell you where you can purchase the game. One of those places was Bravo Sierra Computers out of Portland, Oregon. I never purchased anything from Ben, but I've heard he was quite a character, and if you read the intro text on his website, that was obvious. It's always sad to hear about another Atari fan passing, and because he was one of those guys who kept Atari products available, it's even worse news. Ben was interviewed in the Antic podcast back in 2017 on Interview 260. We'll provide a link to the interview in the show notes. Rest in peace, Ben Smith. So what else have I been up to recently? Well, I went to a retro sales event near where I live. I purchased one of those Atari CX85 numeric keypads. I had one of those when I was a teen because my mom purchased the accounting software package, and I think it came with it. I have no skill to 10 key, so I just got it because it looks good. <laughs> uh, my buddy Dave Clark participated in the Conclash 12 held at the Vortex Arcade in Sherwood, Arkansas from September 30th to October 1st. The event was a best score of the day, and it started at 10 a.m. in the morning and ended at midnight. Uh, contestants could play as many times as they wanted to, but the last quarter had to be played by 10.30 p.m., and if you've ever tried for a 1 million score in Donkey Kong, uh, basically a game to 1 million could take up to about three hours. So you better get in before 1030. Uh, the winner was Justin Elliott with a score of 1,108,000. Dave came in fourth in the pro division with a score of 742,300. He has broken a million several times, but uh, this is a pretty decent score. Well, recently, Captain Bob of the Atari 5200 podcast went to PRGE 2022, and he had some stories to tell. So if you want to hear them, check out our latest episode of the Atari 5200 podcast. And while Bob was at PRGE, I had him pick up, uh, for me, a couple of games. One game was called Robin Banks for the 5200, which is a version of Lock and Chase. And he also picked up a copy of Quicks which is a version of Kicks for the 2600 and Gorf Arcade also for the 2600. And those games were brought to us by our friends at Champ Games and Atari H. And we do have a little bit of a addenda in errata. Um, some of you might have noticed that part of our outro to our show has been pre-recorded. This is something I did years ago. And while editing the last episode, I thought I would check to make sure all the info was still correct. Well, to my surprise, it turns out the Throwback Network website is no more, and it's been defunct since uh, October 7th, 2018. So, uh, I've been advertising a dead website for about four years. Whoops. There is so much goes on into creating a show like this that sometimes the little things get overlooked. Okay, so the first game we're going to be talking about tonight is Into the Eagle's Nest. The publisher is Atari USA. The year was 1988. The model number is RX8114, and the genre is arcade gauntlet type. The developers were Cass Beekhouse, 
Coding and Sound, Robin Chapman, Graphics, Andrew Chalice, Original Programmer for the C64 version for Pandora Software. The number of players is one, and there is also a demo feature. Controls are basically used a joystick. Now let's take a look at the back of the box and read the description. Explosive espionage action. There it stands before you, barely visible against the night sky, the secluded eagle's nest, a highly fortified garrison stronghold posing a major threat to your advancing armies. It must be destroyed before the enemy can launch its counteroffensive. A three-man team was captured during an earlier failed sabotage attempt. Intelligence reports suggest that they've managed to plant explosives throughout the fortress before they were overpowered. You must enter the fortress, rescue your three comrades, ensure the eagle's nest destruction by locating and triggering the explosive devices on all four floors, and make your escape. Your main offensive will commence at E, hour plus four, by which time the eagle's nest must be destroyed. Good luck. We're depending on you. Okay, so let's talk about playing the game. The introduction screen shows a lone U.S. soldier looking upon the eagle's nest castle, sitting high atop a grassy hill flanked by a dark forest. Above it, a large airplane passes over, possibly the one that dropped this soldier off. At the top of the screen is the title, Into the Eagle's Nest. At the bottom is the copyright information for Pandora and Atari Corp, both for 1988. Now let's talk about the title screen. After a few moments, this screen is revealed. Once again, Into the Eagle's Nest is displayed prominently at the top of the screen, but this time appears to be chiseled into a stone slab. Below are the credits of the programmer and the graphic artist. Now, this game also offers a high score feature. This will be displayed right after the initial credits. Unfortunately, this game doesn't offer the option to save previously obtained high scores. So the initial default scores will be all set by the player named Pandora. Let's talk about demo mode. If you've gotten to this point but haven't started playing, the game will go into demo mode. You will see the screen titled Mission 1, Rescue the Prisoner. Your demo player will navigate around a level, picking up items and shooting German soldiers before eventually getting surrounded and succumbing to his injuries. A message will inform you that you are dead. Levels. There are four levels that you must complete. One to three, you need to rescue the prisoners. The fourth level, you need to blow up the castle. We'll talk more about this soon. To select one of these missions, you'll move the joystick up or down and press the select button. When the mission you want to play has been highlighted, press the fire button or the start button and begin the game. The controls are quite simple. Move the joystick in the direction you want your player to go. Press the fire button to put rounds into your target. You can pause the game at any time by pressing the select button. Pressing it again will resume the gameplay. To begin a new game, press either Start or Reset. Well, let's talk about the gameplay. Your mission, to explore all four floors of the castle and set off the detonator on each. If you are rescuing prisoners, you must lead them back to the storage room where you began the game. To access the other levels, you must first obtain a lift pass and then find the lift, or what we Yanks call, elevators. These appear as big brown squares. When you enter, you are allowed to select a floor. These are listed as basement, ground floor, first floor, and second floor. On the right side of the screen is your panel display. This shows the number of keys you have picked up, 
the amount of ammo you're carrying, the max you can carry is up to 99, the number of hits you have received. If the counter reaches 50, you die. And finally, your seven digit score. At the bottom of the screen, a marquee of text will scroll past when you execute certain actions like picking up ammo, food, or when you die. What about some of the dangers in the game? Well, we got ourselves some Nazi soldiers. Nazis. I hate these guys. These guys take two shots to put them down. The manual states, shoot them before they shoot you. But we didn't see any damage taken until they touched you. We also didn't see any shot animation, further proving they don't shoot you at any range. Explosives. You shoot these, well... You die, she dies, everybody dies. Sounded reasonable to me. Mission aids. These are in-game items that you will encounter and most will aid you in your mission. Pick up an item in this game is as simple as coming in contact with them. Here's a list of them. Keys. They will open gray doors. There are limited supplies, so use them wisely. Keys aren't required for yellow doors. These you just open by shooting them. Pendants and jewels. Would you believe these are stolen art treasures? They've taken so many that they're just strewn around the castle. Collect them so you can return them to their rightful owners or keep them for yourself as the spoils of war. That belongs in a museum! Chests. These come in two flavors, opened and closed. To open them, shoot the covers off revealing art treasure, explosives, or nothing. Nothing! Absolutely nothing! Lift passes. As previously mentioned, these must be collected prior to allowing you to ride the lift. First aid kits and cold food. These will replenish your health. Ammo. These look like little gold bars. Grab enough to replenish your supply. Each box contains 10 rounds. Even if your ammo counter is full, your player can still pick up ammo, which essentially wastes it. Since ammo is an important resource, be very careful not to pick up ammo when it's unnecessary. Boulders. These can block doorways. Shoot them to remove them. Explosive detonator. These must be set off on each floor in order to complete the game. Filing cabinets and desks. Use these to take cover or trap enemies behind. Now let's talk about scoring. If you pick up a pendant, that's worth 4,000 points. If you pick up jewels, that's another 4,000 points. If you shoot a Nazi dead, that's 100 points. Cold food increases your health by 10 points. First aid kits completely heal your health. At the end of the mission, you'll be shown a list of existing high scores. If your score exceeds any of these, you will be allowed to enter up to 10 characters. Unfortunately, there's no save capability, so your scores will be erased as soon as you turn the console off. Let's talk a little bit about strategy. Like a lot of manuals, this one offers some strategy tips. Here are a few we haven't previously mentioned. Since the enemies can get caught up between items in a, on a level, this can help you pick them off one by one. Avoid surprises. Learn to anticipate when Nazis are coming toward you so you can shoot them before they get near. Explore only as much of the floor as you need to. Once you've obtained what you need, move on. Use the lifts only when you are certain that you are done with the current floor. All open doors will be closed after you leave the floor. Be careful with the rescue prisoners. Their fatigue makes them move slowly, and they may get lost if your player moves too quickly. If a prisoner is too dazed and refuses to move, get him going again by firing a warning shot in his direction, or just plain shoot him. And, and be done with it. <laughs> okay. History and trivia. This game was created in six weeks. 
Kess had written his own 6502 compiler and editor for the Atari ST and transferred the game to the Atari 8-bit via a hardware cable from the ST to the second joystick port on the Atari 8-bit. This allowed the program to compile within seconds instead of minutes. When Atari received the game, they request that Kess remove his name from the title screen. As we can see, that didn't happen. The game also suffered from flickering since it was designed on a 50 Hz system. After some vertical blank code optimization, he was able to resolve this issue. Thanks to YouTuber Kettles Geek TV for providing this interesting information. I found an ad on Atari Mania where Kess identified himself as a freelance programmer and was selling some of his applications, possibly some that he had used to develop this game. The manual states, you received your orders from Army Intelligence 9th Division on March 8, 1945 at 12.43 military time. Ober Salzburg, or Eagle's Nest, was Adolf Hitler's mountaintop retreat and was the home of to many of his high-ranking Nazi leaders. It was captured on May 4, 1945. U.S. General John Iron Mike O'Daniel's request to capture the area was denied, but he ignored orders and advanced on the town of Burchest Garden. The German Third Reich surrendered just three days later. So let's talk about the legacy of this game. Aside from the Atari 8-bit version, the game was also released on other systems. The Commodore 64, which is the original version, the Amiga, the Amstrad CPC, the Apple II, the Atari ST, DOS, and ZX Spectrum. Okay, so now let's go on to my review. For graphics, I gave it a 7. The graphics are good, but the color palette is limited. However, if you're going for that muddy, grimy World War II look, then it's fitting. Stats are easy to see, and I like the scrolling information at the bottom of the screen. For sound and music, I'm going to give it an 8. The sounds in the game itself are adequate. Nothing to write home about, but it's the intro theme that makes up for it. Gameplay, I gave it a 7. I didn't find this game as enjoyable as much as Gauntlet, but this is more of a strategic run-and-gun game compared to Gauntlet. Your ammo runs out very fast, and you have to be careful not to pick up more ammo than you can hold or you waste it. Food and first aid isn't that plentiful. Opponents are very similar to Gauntlet, and in that sense, they aren't very smart, but it's the sheer amount of them that makes them challenging. You can only take 50 points of damage, so thankfully, they are not very good shots. Enemies will respawn from previously cleared areas, so I found the difficulty level to be a bit too high for me. Presentation, I'm going to give it an 8. The box is the usual XCGS fare, but it does have a good illustration of the lone American GI preparing to enter the fortress on top of the hill. Back of the box tells you about the explosive espionage action that will soon commence. You get two screenshots of gameplay and a rousing send-off in the description. My overall score is 7.5. Although I probably enjoyed the more simple run-and-gun of Gauntlet, I can see myself playing this game again in the future if I'm looking for a real challenge and I'm a glutton for punishment. Okay, for graphics, I gave it an 8. I love the floor textures and wall textures, and the little light reflection off the helmets was also a nice touch. I also like the nice iron eagle on all the boxes. The multi-shaded scrolling marquee looks cool, but it passes by a little too fast to be an effective way of communicating info, and some of that info could have been presented better. 
The info bar on the right is clean and clearly displays the info we need to know, but I think it could have been given a less flat look, at least around the edges. Sound and music. I gave it a 7. All the sound effects are well done, although your movements make you sound more like an armored vehicle than boots on the floor. Still, it gives a sense of movement, and I was fine with it. Uh, the title music was well done. I don't think it exactly fits the World War II style of the game, but it was fine. I actually wish there was a little bit more music uh, between, say, the floor transitions or at the title screen. Gameplay, I gave it a 7. The game definitely offers a guns ablazing experience, but also requires a little bit of strategy. It has that annoying game mechanic like allowing you to pick up too much ammo. Um, the AI is pretty much just zombie logic, which is fine and allows you to um, game the system by having the Nazi soldiers get stuck behind objects. But when you're rescuing a prisoner, these guys constantly get in your way, uh, which can be very annoying. I wish the scrolling would keep the player centered on the screen, but I suspect this is a limitation of the hardware. So what we get is probably what the best you get back then. Presentation, I give it a six. The intro screen looks great and really sets the mood for your mission you're about to embark on. As I mentioned before, I think that the title screen should have some music. The manual could have explained a bit more about the gameplay. After reading it, there were aspects that I didn't quite understand, such as how the prisoner escorting worked, um, how you set off the detonators, and how you dealt with uh, chests that could explode. Cover the box is fine, but doesn't give a sense of action. Overall, I give it a 7. I do think this is a fun game, even though there are few quirks, but might offer limited replay ability and variety. Still, for a gauntlet-type game, it definitely sits up there with its brethren. For external reviews, Atari Mania gave it a 7.9 out of 10 with 16 votes. Okay, time to review our second game. That is Eastern Front 1941. It was published by Atari Corporation. The year was 1981 for the Atari Program Exchange version, which came on tape and disc. In 1982, there was the Atari Brown cartridge. In 1987, there was the XLXE Silver Box. And finally, in 1988, the XEGS Box. The model number is RX8039. The genre is Strategy War Game. It's developed by Chris Crawford. And number of players is one. Uh, controller is joystick and keyboard. Let's read uh, the description on the back of the box. Endure the bitter cold of the Russian winter, the treacherous and vast terrain across which Hitler's armies dared to launch one of the most massive and desperate invasions in military history. Replay the drama of top-secret schemes in devious scenarios as they're put into operation. All the reality of 1941-1942 Eastern Front campaign is currently packed in this game. The demonstration and fervor of the Russian people's plight to save their homeland from the Nazi onslaught. The effects of the infantry development on a hostile and impenetrable landscape. The devastating impact of air support and most important, the consequences of your strategy. Time stands still as you combat the forces of history. Your mind is the power behind the battle of the Eastern Front. Let's talk about playing the game, the game's objective. You're going to move German armies across Russia to capture Moscow and other cities. When the game first starts, you see the title Eastern Front 1941 is displayed at the top of the screen. In the middle of the screen, you'll see approximately one ninth of the total playfield map and your orange square cursor, whose location is east of Leningrad, also known as St. Petersburg, 
and north of Riga. At the bottom of the screen is the copyright information and below that, the current level, which starts as learner. Now let's talk about the levels, which the default is learner, but there's six levels of gameplay. So you can hit the select key to choose other levels. To select the sixth level, you select the fifth level, then hit start, then hit select again. Let's cover what challenges the player will be confronted with at each level setting. Learner, at this level, the campaign lasts from June 22nd to September 28th, 1941, or until you take Moscow. This is a short 14 turns. You are provided with one German army to fight one Russian army. This mode obviously was made to get the player used to the functionality of the game and to navigate an army around the map and not pose any real challenges to the player. Beginner, the campaign lasts from June 22nd to September 28th, 1941. You command 17 German units against 32 Russian units. All fighting takes place in the northern half of Russia. Intermediate, the campaign lasts from June 22nd to September 28th, 1941. You command 30 units, 27 are German, and three are from your Romanian allies. Your opposition will consist of 66 Russian units. Your battleground has now extended to all of Russia. Your goals have been increased. You must not only capture Moscow, but also Leningrad in the north and Stalingrad in the south. At this level, this is the first time in the manual mentions a scoring system, where you obtain points for capturing and holding Russian cities, but also you'll lose points every time a German soldier dies. We'll cover the scoring system more in detail later on. Advanced. The campaign lasts from June 22, 1941 to March 29, 1942. Now you're in it for the long game of 40 turns of pain and suffering. You command 42 units against 96 Russian units. You also get points for distant cities. The points you receive for destroying Russian armies have increased. The expert difficulty. The expert levels present the player with the most accurate picture of the war. What that means is Germans will lose the battle every time. So your best strategy is to achieve the least negative score possible. Of course, you could be like Joshua and decide that the only winning move is not to play, but come on, this is just a simulated war game. Expert 1941. The campaign lasts from June 22nd, 1941 to March 29th, 1942. You command 47 units against 119 Russian units. This level and beyond offers you the ability to give four separate types of commands called core mode of movement. You'll also be provided with a new type of unit, Flieger Corps or Flying Corps. You now begin with a negative score because you are massively outnumbered and at a distinct disadvantage. Unfortunately, just destroying Russians will not put you in the black. So you'll have to focus on capturing and holding cities. This level reflects Germany's long-term interests in 1941. Expert 1942. The campaign lasts from May 24, 1942 to March 28, 1943. As with the expert 1941 level, you command 47 units against 119 Russian units and your score is negative. You are now surrounded and on the defensive. The game manual suggests that only a fool 
would go on the offensive at this point. When you've selected the level you want, hit the start key and begin the campaign. Retaining game progress. Before you get started, it's important to note that Eastern Front has provided you the ability to save your game via tape or disc. Here's how you do it for both mediums. First for disc, saving your progress. Turn on the disk drive and insert a formatted disk containing DOS, but without the auto run sys file. Start your computer with the Eastern Front 1941 cartridge installed. At any point during the gameplay, if you would like to save your game, press the option key. To load your save progress, place a save disk into your floppy drive. Start up your computer with the Eastern Front cartridge installed. Let the opening play screen come up and then press the option key. After it loads, you can pick up where you left off. For cassette, now, I think we've all moved on past the inexpensive and unreliable cassette recorder for our preferred storage device. But for completeness, I'm including in this coverage. Feel free to zone out. Saving your progress. Insert a blank cassette into your tape recorder. Uh, insert the cartridge in uh, the console. Press the option key. When the computer sound beeps, it gives you two beeps. Press both record and play simultaneously. Uh, followed by pressing the return on the keyboard. For loading your progress, to resume your game, insert the cassette you had previously saved your game on and rewind it to the beginning. Start up your system again with Eastern Front cartridge installed. Let the opening play screen come up and then press the option key. When your computer sounds one beep, press play on the recorder and hit return on the keyboard. As with the disc version, you can pick up where you left off. Of course, several minutes later probably. Controls. You've got start key, which executes your orders you have uh, given to your units. And to cancel an order that hasn't been already been executed, move the cursor over the unit, press the fire button down, and press the space bar. Countries. You command the German, Finnish, and Italian units. The Finnish can only defend until you take Leningrad. Let's talk about the terrain. The forest. The icons look like green trees of two sizes. The swamp, these are a series of blue Vs. Rivers appear as winding blue lines. Cities also appear as a collection of small blocky shapes. German-occupied cities are white, such as the city of Warsaw in Poland, while Russian-occupied cities are red. Mountains, these appear as orange triangles. Unimpeded ground, this appears as a black area. Let's talk about the military units. There are three types of units, infantry, armored divisions, and air support. Germans are white while the Soviets are red. Infantry corps and militia, these are identified with a little X in the center. Armor, panzer, and cavalry units. These look like a box inside of a box. German tanks are identified as panzers while Soviets are just listed as tanks. The Flieger Corps, these are your air support. They're identified as a square with a cross inside. These five units appear on the left side of the screen, the area designated as Poland. You'll want to ensure they are airborne. If they get caught on the ground by the enemy, they will be easily destroyed. You can inspect units by moving your cursor over the unit and pressing the fire button. For the German unit, the symbol will disappear, revealing a yellow iron cross. This is also called a Multi-Kreitzer, or Maltese Cross. For the Russian units, the terrain behind will be revealed. 
This will display the following information. The type of unit, the muster. This number measures how many men, tanks, and guns the unit has. This would be considered the potential the unit has. The combat strength. This measures how effectively these resources can be brought to bear in battle. The manual tries to explain how this is affected. It states the chaos and crisis of combat will generate confusion, and that's about as detailed as it gets. But in an interview, Chris says, it's how many men are willing to fight. It also says the number is affected by how well the unit is supplied. Okay, the gameplay. Let's talk about zone of control. And zone of control just means the effectiveness of a unit in the eight squares that surround it. This was a game mechanic created by war game designers to reduce the complexity for one game player to control and to keep the number of units down to a reasonable level. The positions north, south, east, and west offer a unit a full zone of control. Having your unit surround an enemy unit at these positions will provide you with the best possible outcome. The positions northeast, northwest, southeast, and southwest only offer a half amount of zone control if another friendly unit casts at least a half zone of control into it. A unit's movement is affected by enemy zones of control only and not by friendly influence. For example, if two Russian units are separated by one square, the German unit can't pass by. But if there's more than one square between the units, the area of influence is much lower, allowing the German unit to pass. No unit can enter a square already occupied by another unit. If an order instructs another friendly unit to enter the currently friendly occupied space, the unit will wait until the space is vacated by the friendly unit, giving and executing orders. There are two methods of giving orders, general and core mode. As previously mentioned, core mode is available in expert level uh, 1941 and above, but let's talk about issuing general orders first. Move your cursor over the German unit. Press the fire button and move your joystick in an up, down, left, or right direction. Sorry, but units cannot move in a diagonal direction. Where you place your cursor will indicate where you want the unit to move. The green area indicates the path your unit will take. You can enter a maximum of eight orders for each unit. If you need to erase an order, just press the space bar while you still have the joystick button pressed. Your iron cross will return to the location of the unit in the cursor, allowing you to start over. When you release the button, you have executed the order to that unit. When you have given the orders to all the units you wish to move, press the start button. At this point, the battle will commence and sounds of the battle will ring out in your speakers while defending units will flash. All you can do is watch with hope that your strategy will end in success. For issuing core commands on expert mode, move your cursor over the unit. Press the fire button once and release it briefly, then press it again without releasing it. The core present mode of movement appears in a dark orange strip with the rest of the unit's information. You can issue the following four commands. Press up on the joystick for standard. This is your normal movement. Your unit march, attack, and defend equally well. Press down for forced march. This results in greater speed of movement, but causes a loss in combat strength because your unit's artillery can fall behind. This, however, once forced march ends, the unit combat strengths will return soon. This mode is primarily for infantry rather than panzer groups. Press right for assault. This mode puts an emphasis on attack. This unit will move more slowly, but its defense capability is unchanged. 
The advantage is that your unit will inflict a greater amount of damage, but expect a higher amount of casualties. Press left for entrench. Entrenchment causes your troops to spread out and set up clear fields of fire for their machine guns. This increases your defensive strength, but the unit will have no movement or have the ability to attack. After releasing your fire button, you can issue the orders in the usual way. Time for some more history and trivia. Aside from this game, Chris also was one of the authors of De Re Atari, which was considered a must-have for developers back in the day. I had a copy, but I found it was a bit too technical for someone with limited background in software development. In addition to the game being released on the APX, uh, they also sold the source code with the tutorial content. This is brilliant since getting your hands on professional code would have helped out a, a lot of burgeoning coders back in the day. You did need an assembler cartridge, a disk drive, and $50. Chris also has a source code on his website with all sorts of other goodies, including unfinished Western Front 1944 game. We'll provide a link to that in our show notes. Eastern Front 1941 was the Atari Program Exchange's most popular program. It and Caverns of Mars were the only games to get the APX to cartridge treatment. Chris stated in the APX manual that it took him almost eight months to complete. In the Apex version of the manual, Chris states, Indeed, this game does not utilize all the graphic capabilities of the machine. The game does not make use of one of the players, all the missiles, player playfield priorities, and collision detections, four color character sets, real-time color registry in direction, and dynamic display lists. Thus, it makes use of only about 75% of the graphic capabilities inherent to the machine. Much learning lies in front of us before we can say that we have mastered this computer. The APX version of the manual reveals a lot more interesting facts about development of the game, so if you're interested, check it out. We'll provide a link in the show notes. So, what level of the game matches Operation Barbarossa to the closest? Well, that's hard to say without a deep dive into the number of troops per unit. A World War II German division contained between 12,000 and 25,000 men. In the APX version of the manual, it mentions why we see a single unit and not 50,000 men. This would imply that maybe a unit contains two divisions of 25,000. During World War II, Germany allotted almost 150 divisions containing a total of 3 million men, or an average of 20,000 men per division. Of those units were 19 panzer divisions, 3,000 tanks, 700 artillery pieces, 2,500 aircraft. It was also supported by 30 divisions of Finnish and Romanian troops. It was, in effect, the largest and most powerful invasion force in human history. Doing some fuzzy math, it would mean that out of the 47 units, each unit should contain approximately 64,000 men. Of course, if you look at a unit's combat strength, it says it's uh, around 100. So what I'm getting at is, don't think too hard about the numbers. As far as the Soviets... It was estimated at twice or perhaps three times the number of both tanks and aircraft, but the aircraft were mostly obsolete. Germans correctly estimated that there were about 150 divisions in the western parts of the USSR and reckoned that 50 more might be produced. But the Soviets actually brought up more than 200 fresh divisions by the middle of August, making a total of 360. Now, I would love to go into the gritty details of the campaign, but let's just say the German military made a huge mistake. Never underestimate desert people or the weather. Although games based around real wars make for a great setting, 
We can't ignore the losses caused by the Eastern Front incursion, also known as Operation Barbarossa. For the USSR, they lost somewhere between 20 to 35 million soldiers and civilians. This was the largest death rate of the war. The percentage of population that perished was at least 13.44%. 25 million Russians were homeless. Around 1,700 cities and 70,000 villages of the Soviet Union were destroyed or burned. Total material losses of the USSR are estimated at 2.6 trillion Soviet rubles. As far as Germany, 80% of all German military casualties occurred on the Eastern Front. Germany lost 5.5 million soldiers and 1.8 million civilians. Percentage of its population that perished was 10.77%. Also, let's not forget Poland. They lost 100,000 soldiers and 1.9 million civilians. The percentage of its population that perished was 18.5%. Statistically, Poland lost more than any other nation. If you're interested in knowing more about Chris, Eastern Front, and the other games he created, we'll provide you with a few links to such information in the show notes. What about the game's legacy? There was also a scenario editor to let you create your own battles, as well as a pre-made scenario for 1942, 1943, and 1944. Both these tiles were sold in the APX. All right, I'll go first on the review. Well, back in the day, at some point I did get my hands on this game, but I didn't have the manual, so I had no clue what was going on. <laughs> Unfortunately, as time marched on, even when I played games such as Empire, War Game of the Century on the ST, and Sid Meier's Colonizations on the PC, I pretty much sucked at them. Later on, I did play other real-time strategies like Microsoft Close Combat 2 and Close Combat 3 Russian Front. Adding a ticking time element didn't improve my outcome. Um, these games required a level of organization and management that uh, is not part of my DNA. So turn-based games would offer me the time to think through my moves. That being said, I will not let my lack of skill in this genre affect my opinion of this game. So for graphics, I give it a 6. The game was meant to present information, not to wow the player with graphics. I think it does this well, but um, it's very basic, and I would have liked to see tank units shown as a tank and infantry maybe shown as a troop or you know soldier. I mean, square symbols work, but they do not impress. Uh, the fonts they used for the text is unchanged from the default. Um, because there are so many units to keep track of, I wish there was a way to indicate which units had already been given orders for that round. For sound and music, I give it a three. Aside from some boops, beeps, and blats, you get some semblance of battle sounds. And that's about it for the game's contribution to sound. There is no music. Uh, does this mean the game suffers from the sound sparseness? Not really. Uh, it works well, but um, I just feel like there had been an opportunity to envelop the player in a more epic thematic soundtrack, as well as providing a bit more immersive battle sounds. Gameplay, I give it an 8. Although this game lacks some of the features of turn-based strategy games of just a few years later, it's a groundbreaking game for its time as a straight-up turn-based strategy. Uh, the game starts off with by offering you an invasion that historically the Germans failed to execute successfully. So you're dealing with a, what Star Trek fans would call a Kobayashi Maru or a no-win situation. I think this is a very interesting angle seeing uh, you're playing as the Germans or as the bad guys. But in 1981, 
the Soviet Union was considered the bad guys by a lot of people who play this game. So this angle offers players a conflicting perspective, um, which I think is very interesting. Reading the manual is a must, um, and I don't think this is the type of game one just picks up. So although the screen can be confusing, reading a manual is a necessary step in making this issue moot. I'd also suggest reading the APX version of the manual since it adds some technical details missing from this one. Presentation, I give it an 8. Although this title screen is non-existent, the box cover image and the manual are spectacular. These remind me of those old manuals you get from those Infocom games. This manual's design not only gives you the feeling that you're reading military documents, but it's mixed with historic photos and backgrounds. I did find the game instructions mixed with the presentation information did muddy the waters a bit, next to the more instructions-only oriented APX manual. I'm giving this an 8 based solely on the box and manual. The manual, in my opinion, is one of the best of its time um, for the 8-bit systems. Overall score, uh, I give it a 7. If you're looking for the, a strategy game in 1982, this game would have been uh, one you would pick up. Um, and although a lot of these types of games mostly use unmodified character sets, there are a few that look just as good, if not better, than this game at the time. By the time the XEGS version was released, you had a ton of other options if you had a cassette player or disc drive. But as far as I can tell, this was the only strategy war game to come on cartridge. That in itself makes a unique game. And if you can pick up a box copy with a manual, it's definitely a must have for your collection. So for graphics, I gave it a six. This is not meant to be a heavily graphical game. It uses symbols to represent armies, simple graphics to represent forests, swamps, rivers, etc. I do really like the use of color to depict the changing of the season. As fall to winter approach, rivers go from blue to white. The background map color goes from black to gray. Your units move and flash during combat and a small animation that looks like a turret flash fires between the opposing units. Since the graphics are meant to be more representational than accurate, I have tempered my score. Sound and music, I give it a five. No intro theme, no music of any kind. The only sounds you have are during the entry of commands and the pop-pop sounds when the units are fighting. Now for gameplay, I'm gonna give it a nine. The game is deceptively simple, one joystick, fire button, start and space bar, but it's not that simple. It's not just your command that affects your result, but a whole bunch of other factors. Your position on the map, terrain, season, supply line, or lack thereof. Presentation, I'm gonna give it a seven. It's the usual XCGS box with a photo on the front and screenshots and description on the back. The description is very telling as it says, your mind is the power behind the battles of the Eastern Front. There is no splash screen, no intro theme. You just pick the difficulty and the game starts. The game graphics are so representational that you really need to use your imagination to tell yourself you're playing a World War II battle. With the same graphics and different units, this could have been just as easily Napoleon invades Russia. Overall score, I'm going to round it up to a 7, and that's because I really wanted a bit more graphical or audio cues to make me feel I was in World War II. But I do realize this was an early game, and that's one of the factors that made this game special. It was popular enough that it made its way onto a cart, 
It's just a lack of audio in the end that brings the score down. But this is definitely a great game when you're in the mood. So let's talk about external reviews. On Atari Mania, it got 7.2 out of 10 with 197 votes. Computer Gaming World gave it 4 to 5 stars. Analog Computing gave it 9.3 out of 10. InfoWorld gave it the review of Excellent. The Addison Wesley book of Atari Software 1984 gave it an A, calling it perhaps the best designed computer war game to appear on any microcomputer to date. The game did receive awards. Creative Computing's Game of the Year for 1981, the Academy of Adventure Gaming Arts and Design for Best Adventure Game for Home Computer 1981, Charles S. Roberts Award given at the 1981 Origins Awards, Best Adventure Game for a Home Computer of 1981. Well, that's it for the show. There was another one in the can. Thank you, everybody. Bye, everybody. Yeah, take care. Hope you enjoyed the show. Keep your powder dry. In our next episode, we try a few sportball games. First, we have the opportunity to play one-on-one basketball between the legendary Larry Bird and Irving Magic Johnson. Then we promise we won't go soft on the review of the baseball game Hardball. You can find our latest episodes, news, and information on our website, www.xegs8bit.com. We also have links on there so you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter. We'd like to thank ComputeHer for giving us permission to use her song software as our show's theme song. You can visit ComputeHer at computeher.com. That's computeher.com for more information. We'd also like to thank Brian Heath for his contributions of the song Siege. Also, thanks to the folks who contribute to and maintain the Atari Mania database, Wikipedia, and other fine results of Google searches.